Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. When Anthony Hamilton Russell gave up a job as a management consultant to return to the family wine farm in the Hemelanada Valley, his London salary was more than the turnover of the business his pioneering father had established in 1981. Our fascinating chat about the last 40 years of South Africa's leading cool climate region covered everything from Nelson Mandela to leaf roll virus, pinotage to sustainability. Hello, Anthony. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Thanks very much. Uh, it's wonderful to have you and to hear you. And where are you? For once, you're not travelling because you do get around, you guys. <laughs> not as much as you. I'm actually <laughs> at home, Braemar and Hamilton Russell Vineyards, where I love to be. Nowhere better, I have to say. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I, I love staying there with you guys occasionally and sharing a bottle of wine and chatting, really. Listen, you were born in Cape Town, which is not so far from where you are and where you live now. Just tell us a little bit about wine in your childhood. I mean, was it part of it when you were growing up? Were your parents wine drinkers? My father was a wine drinker. His father would have a bottle of basic wine open on the side table in the dining room for three or four days. They were sort of the brandy and, and soda and uh, sort of whiskey and soda types. Um, but my father fell in love with it when he was at Oxford and made an effort with it. Certainly by the time I was cutting my wine drinking teeth, there were great wines around. And he drank what, Burgundy, Bordeaux or not South African wines in those days, presumably, did he? Uh, quite a bit of South African wine. I actually started collecting wine labels when I was nine years old. So I'd soak them off and they, you could get them off in those days. But um, he fell in love with Bordeaux initially. It's easier to, to learn your way around. It's very simple, the classif- classification. Yeah. And his, his initial collection was Bordeaux. But I, I think as Hamilton Russell started excelling with Pinot Noir, those kind of were drunk down and uh, Pinot Noir started replacing it. We could get great yeah. Pinot wine expensively in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, we all remember those, don't we? I mean, <laughs> with great fondness, <laughs> nostalgia. Listen, tell us a bit more about your dad, Tim, a fellow Tim like me. I mean, I had the, uh, the opportunity to meet him on a few occasions and he was a real character. I loved him very much. You know, he was an advertising man. He had an Irish passport, despite sounding and looking very English. And in wine terms, he was a revolutionary, wasn't he? I mean, just tell us your memories of him, really. Well, he's, you know, he's from that generation where there was a degree of, uh, I guess, austerity in, in terms of your physical demeanor, uh, but always a very kind man. And I think the standout for me was just the uh, perfectly aligned moral compass, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of honesty, and a sense of decency and absolute hatred of bullying or picking on underdogs. And uh, that's, I think, was almost came down through his father as well. It's something that I really admired in him. And uh, but uh, perfectly willing to have a scrap if it were necessary. <laughs> we're we're going to hear about that in a minute because <laughs> because he was also, as you've mentioned, the underdog. I mean, yeah, at a time when it was comparatively dangerous, even for somebody in a prominent position within an advertising agency as he was, to be very outspoken against the government and about against apartheid. You know, he he really was very outspoken about those those sorts of things in in the kind of you know mid to late eighties. Yes, 
and and even a little bit before his uh, some of his siblings actually were in that sort of secret underground resistance and had friends locked up. Uh, my uncle did jail time. Uh, my grandfather was an opposition MP who walked out of parliament uh, after they tried to impose the detention without trial law. And um, there was this family ethic of resisting what was happening with apartheid in the country. In my father's case, he was hidebound by running a business of some of some note, and uh, he was limited in what he could do. And uh, but he did what he could, and um, you know I admired him for that. Just tell us what took him to the Hemelanada Valley, and in particular, you know, in, end up buying the not one vineyard but two vineyards or two pieces of land, didn't he? Yes. Well, you know, there's the official line and then there's the line that we see as family members. Uh, my grandfather did during the Second World War um, ask my grandmother to buy a property which is on the lagoon in Hermanus. And my father spent you know, most of his Christmases there as a child. My grandfather had been coming to the town of Hermanus since the 30s, early 30s. And the place had enormous emotional significance for my father. So when he was searching for a wine farm, beginning in Stellenbosch, which was logical, they were either too expensive or not for sale. He really had a go at buying Marathi, but Anna-Marie Connors didn't want to sell it to him. And Damn. she wanted to go back to the Melk family, which it did. And yeah. I think there's a beauty in that. Yeah. And um, Deso Pongratz, his mentor, encouraged him to look more widely uh, down even towards Bredasdorp, where I think uh, the, the people Deso was working with were looking at a project. And um, that opened my father's mind to looking at new places. And with Dezo in tow, Dezo Pongratz in tow, he looked at a number of properties. And I think the one in Hermanus, overlooking Hermanus, just emotionally felt right to him. And in those days, the idea was, could a vine grow or not? It wasn't, this is the style you're going to get if you plant something here. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was in advertising, obviously, but he studied geography at Oxford, as you did. So, you know, he, he, he wasn't just, he wasn't naive about it. I mean, presumably he'd done his homework and there was, you said there was an emotional component involved in the whole thing, wasn't there? Yes. I think he, he very much switched to, uh, after sort of drawing a blank in Stellenbosch, to wanting something a little further south and uh, wanted cooling to come through latitude. Um, and the net effect was to buy a property where cooling came principally through proximity to the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a great lover of maps, and this is before we've, we've got them all on our phones. Mm -hmm. He had drawers and drawers full of them and cupboards full of them. And Have you still got them? them. <laughs> Have you still got them, the old maps? Many of them. Many of them. Yeah. I mean, they're just too many to count. It's just maps <laughs> of, of all over. <laughs> I mean, in the early days, he planted a bit of everything, didn't he? Across those two properties, Cabernet, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, Gewurz, Rhine Riesling, as well as obviously Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And he fell foul of the authorities, another bit of his sort of rebel behaviour, no? Yes. At that time, because the uh, industry was traditionally in huge overproduction and the government was essentially trying to protect the incomes of grape growers and they wanted to limit where vines were planted. They didn't want even more excess to get rid of internationally. However, they did it. Mm. And you needed a quota to produce wine. There was no quota on Hamilton Russell vineyards, hence the second farm. There was a mm. little bit of quota on that. And so there was a bit of smoke and mirrors about where the grapes were actually coming from. And uh, the grapes that went into the ground really were the noble varieties uh, seen at the time. Actually, Rhine Riesling was not amongst them. No, it uh, wasn't. Uh, Gewurz, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, um, Pinot Noir, Cabernet. And there was even a little bit of Pinotage that might have been a residue on the other property that was purchased for quota. 
And, and, and he fell foul of the authorities because of that, really, because he was saying that the wines, the, the grapes came from one particular property with a quota when they actually were coming from the other place that didn't have a quota, right? I think the other thing that, that got him in a bit of trouble, uh, which actually ended in some form of court case, was, was mentioning um, Burgundy on the back label and, um, you know, not implying the wines tasted Burgundian, but, you know, literally sort of... Uh, helping the consumer in South Africa understand the style or where the grape excels. And there was something called the, you know, deal between South Africa and Europe with to do with crayfish, the sales of crayfish, it was really convoluted. And he fell foul of that arrangement that no French terms of a certain type could be used <laughs> on product over here. And crayfish. He, he just said, you know, <laughs> you mean I can't say my winemaker went to Burgundy to work a harvest? I mean, it got that petty. But, yeah. but he was very keen for a scrap if it meant getting the authorities to become more open-minded. And he was very successful in that. And yeah. him, along with a few other producers, got them to change that quota system, beginning with you, you could take unused quota somewhere and apply it to somewhere new. Yeah. And then eventually they dropped the system altogether. Yeah, when 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 the when the party collapsed, really, wasn't it? It was the end of the end of yeah, the government. Yeah, a little, yeah. a little bit before that. Yeah, I mean, you, you studied biological sciences at Wits, and then, like your dad, as we said, you studied geography. Um, then you went into corporate finance and management consulting. You did an MBA in the states. Um, you know, what did those years teach you? I mean, did you ever think you'd come back to the farm, or did you think I'm going to make a career outside South Africa doing something different? Well, I, I like a lot of young people uh, in the 80s, the country was really getting pretty bad. If you saw how apartheid had manifested at that time, riots mm. on campus, riot police turning up, uh, dispersing crowds, friends friends getting locked up, that sort of thing. Mm. So a lot of us actually just left the country. I posted my passport back. I was in the very fortunate position of being able to get an Irish passport and work in the UK. And um, there was no, at that point, intention of returning. It just looked like there was no future in the country. Things were pretty nasty uh, in the mid-80s. And um, so I was going to make a career of it. And it was Mandela's release, actually today, the 11th of February, 1990. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he got out. Uh, it was obviously imminent. But that painted a whole new picture about a possible future for South Africa and opened my mind to the idea of returning. I was homesick. I grew up here in my blood. And uh, that, that meant a complete change in, in what I did. It felt like dropping out um, to, to, to sort of come back and, and take over a, a family farm. My, my salary at 29 in London, which wasn't very big because I was young, was bigger than the turnover of Hamilton Russell Vineyards at the time. And... Um, <laughs> And we had quite a few employees and, you know, it wasn't making money and um, I expected to be poor, but I'd rather do that and be happy and do what I loved and felt emotionally connected to than carry on being reasonably well paid in something that was a bit, a bit soulless. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a message for lots of us in that. But what sort of shape was the country in? I mean, Mandela had been released. Um, and, and also, what sort of shape was Hamilton Russell Vineyards in? You've said that you were actually, you're, you're, you were earning more than its total turnover. But just tell us, you know, the state of those two things at the time. Yeah, well, the, the country was not in a good place. There was a future and an optimism and an upbeat, positive belief in a future. But there was an awful lot of internal violence. I think almost more people died during that first four years, prior, uh, post Mandela's release, mm. prior to the first proper democratic elections in 1994. 
there's a massive number of, of, of deaths and violence, probably more than there were throughout the apartheid years, but were black on black violence and just general trouble. And the economy was, was really bad. Um, it only started emerging in the first quarter of 1994. So all of us were, uh, we struggled. Um, we, we, we really did struggle. I remember it being very difficult. I mean, we used to, it, we didn't have emails then um, and, and cell phones very shortly afterwards, but I remember cutting the faxes in half so we didn't have to pay for the transmission of paper that had nothing written on it. <laughs> I don't want you to have to play a small violin for me. but I, I think I'm playing a large violin at that point. <laughs> it was very, very tight. And, um, you, you know, we, we had to be quite, quite clever about doing what was necessary to turn the business around. And you took over in, what, 91, I think, didn't you? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, just tell us what you changed, both in the winery and in the vineyard, because, you know, the, the place had a decent reputation, didn't it? I mean, you know, certainly as a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producer, it was already on the map. What did you feel you needed to change? Well, it, it needed to make money because I had no other income. And um, my father also needed to get something. I bought the business from him in 1994, and he also needed something to retire on decently. And um, so that was the first criteria. There were very, a lot of commercial steps taken with staffing and how it was run, how, uh, how we measured costs and how we behaved. That was very important initially. But the, the main thing was with Mandela in jail, um, exports were really not open to you in so many markets. Mm. And there was moral resistance to South African mm. wine. So to survive, you had to do something for everyone in a small overtraded local market. And it meant mm. fragmented ranges. Once he was out of jail, it made sense to only do what we did best for the whole world. And that's uh, the first most important thing I did really was focus just on Pinot and Chardonnay and stop we were making 11 wines, working with eight grape varieties and purchasing grapes. And we switched very quickly to just doing Pinot and Chardonnay, no reserves, no second labels. And to, to at least have some form of income and growth possibilities as, as we planted and changed I founded Southern Wright as a business uh, specializing in Sauvignon Blanc and Pinotage, and mm -hmm. will be our 30th vintages this year. Mm -hmm. And then in 96, I founded Ashbourne uh, for, mm -hmm. for, you know, the similar reason, uh, mm -hmm. hopefully non-competing properties that enabled growth without destroying the purism of what Hamilton Russell Vineyard stands for. Yeah, so, and Hamilton Russell Vineyards has stayed the same, hasn't it, really, with just the two wines? I mean, other people have made single vineyard wines and reserves and all sorts of stuff, but you're still just the one Pinot <laughs> and the one Chardonnay, yeah? It sounds boring, but it's really worked for us with consumers. And as I say, it's a silly business to get into at the best of times. I mean, generally selling it and sticking the money in a bank, you can get similar income with no work at all. And um, you've got to do it for reasons beyond money. And so it makes sense to do what feels good, what feels right, what fits a philosophy that resonates. Mm. And I like the idea of a single red and single white expressing our property in the most beautiful possible way. And yeah. the property chose Pinot and Chardonnay for us. Mm. Uh, we had tried other things. They just didn't have something quite as beautiful to say. D tell us a little bit about the terroir of the Hemelanada region. I mean, is it a cool climate region by South African standards? Very much so. I would even argue it's cool climate by world standards. And I think with the Winkler system, we tend to think about cold winters or cold nights. Um, they tend to mask searingly hot summers or portion of a searingly hot summer and sometimes a searingly hot day. When the MWs came out in 95 for a um, 
a cool climate symposium. Well, they came to visit South Africa. We hosted a cool climate symposium. And I, I applied the Winkler system to the wines, and they just didn't fit with, with how we felt about the different areas of South Africa. I developed something looking at maximum temperatures only for December, January, February, March for us, June, July, August, September for Europe. We came out at 25 centigrade for the hottest days for those four hottest months, building up to enduring harvest, actually with grapes on the vine. The Winkler system puts it a, a longer period. And um, Elgin and Constantia also came out exactly at 25 centigrade. That was in in, uh, in the sort of earlier 90s. Um, Burgundy for the same period is 24.6. Okay, 20, pretty close. 24.66. I only got the Burgundy data recently, and our recent data is 24.63 to Burgundy's 24.7, and that data in Burgundy has probably gone up massively. So we, if you look at the hot days, we are, are, very, are nice and cool, even versus, say, a Niagara or, or an Oregon or a, um, you know, definitely Burgundy. Uh, they might have a cooler early bit to those four months and a cooler latter bit to the four months, but the two middle bit, the two middle months are significantly warmer. And and the cool climate comes from the ocean primarily, does it? Correct. Um, if you put us in the northern hemisphere, it's Rabat in Morocco. So we might be far south for South Africa, but we're certainly not being helped out much by latitude. Yeah. I mean, the ocean's very close, isn't it? You stand at the top of your property and you're looking at it. I mean, it's how, even as the crow flies, what, a couple of kilometres maybe? Probably not even that. 1,500 metres at closest. But to the, yeah. vin- the closest vineyard, 2.2, 2,200 yeah. metres. But yeah. from my kitchen door where I'm in the house I'm in at the moment, I can hear the waves on the rocks at night and there's a mild onshore breeze and sometimes smell the sea. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, since 2009, the region's been divided into three sub-wards, if you like. Um, just tell us why they're different and why you thought it was necessary, because you were one of the movers and shakers behind it to, to divide a region that's only, what, 450, 450 hectares and I think 22 producers into these three different blocks. Just tell us a bit about that. Yes, uh, we got a lot of criticism initially. Um, it's quite symbolic that that process that I was driving with the help of Dave Johnson um, we got our results as the Willamette Valley was broken into its nested AVAs. Mm. So Himalanada Valley was registered in 06, as was mm. Aola Amity, Dundee, Chehalem, Yamhill Carlton, etc. And um, well, the, the thinking was Walker Bay is the size of the Stellenbosch district. Uh, when I came back, we were the only people selling wine in the area. And then now 22 and growing. And um, if you look at Bot River, which was supposed to be part of our wine ward of Walker Bay, uh, which was supposed to have a homogenous terroir, it was it, it clearly didn't. There are many different soil types and temperature, you know, mesoclimates. Bot River was doing very well with Shannon and Rhone style varieties, making some beautiful wine. We were doing well with Pinot and Chardonnay in this immediate area. And Stanford, town further on, hadn't really developed an identity and who knows where it would turn out. So we didn't want that vague, yes, Walker Bay is broadly maritime, but doesn't stand for anything in particular. So we knew we had to uncouple it. And then the question was, was where and how and what are the limits to it all and you can't draw a boundary without a little bit of controversy and um i luckily <laughs> i luckily owned the name himalanada in class 33 which is anything related to alcohol and it seemed to be the name that everyone wanted to apply uh just got a bit of romance heaven and earth in old dutch and all that and 
we formed Himalanada Valley and Upper Himalanada Valley quite quickly. But then in just at the headwaters of the next valley, there was a Himalanada Ridge, as it became, had some fantastic producers making wonderful and Chardonnay that it was so logical to, to work jointly with them under something common. But where, did it, where would it stop if you went over the watershed? We had to extend Walker Bay to accommodate them. And then wouldn't the next farm, the next farm, the next farm, all down that New River Valley just be eligible for Himalanada? So once we had agreement that they'd all resist further extensions, I was happy to allow the use of the name Himalanada. And that happened in 2009. And the reason for three appellations, it sounds ridiculously complicated when Himalanada just hasn't even registered with so many consumers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's for the long term. It's something you lay in the ground forever. And I mean, think of the complexity of parts of Burgundy that make sense to us as aficionados or longtime fans. Um, the soils are different. And I've dug up some old soil maps, and recently we donated one to the area where we superimposed the appellations onto it. It was an old 1950s or 60s map, and they're just simply different. We were working with intuition, tasting the wines, noticing the difference in styles. No one really believed us. They thought it was all winemaking. Mm -hmm. But now if you look and you see that soil map, it's very, very clear. Upper Himalanada Valley's decomposed granite, essentially. A wonderful and your Bockefeld shale, right? A heavy Bockefeld shale that's had a lighter structured clay, argillaceous sandstone eroded off the top of it. And then when you cross the watershed into Himalanada Ridge, you're back on clay, but it has that argillaceous sandstone on large bits of it. So it depends on where you plant. Mm. And then there's some aspect differences, some altitude differences, different sunshine hours based on where the biggest mountain is and how the sun moves. So there are these beautiful little differences between the three appellations, and I think a relatively consistent stylistic thread, um, yeah. as Hannah Storm has elegantly yeah. shown by making a yeah. wine in all three. In all three, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And I think with hindsight, um, if I may say so, I think it was a good move. I must say at the time I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> is this the narcissism of small differences or whatever they called it, Freud called it. But I don't, I don't think that's true, actually. You would have had a point. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I want to talk to you a little bit about clones because those have changed a lot, haven't they? And one of the big reasons why um, South African Chardonnay, but particularly Pinot Noir, has improved so dramatically, I'd say, what, in the last 10, 15 years, is, is clonal. Just tell us a little bit about your view of which clones work, work best. Are they massal? Are they, are they massal selections or are they actual clone clones, as it were? Well, we, we all had, there was just one clone, uh, a, a Swiss sparkling wine clone called BK5, which was heavily virused. And you asked what I had to do when I come back, apart from staff changes, business things, building a barrel cellar, that sort of stuff. I replanted all uh, the Pinot as quickly as I could and stay in business. With, um, with We were four years ahead of the pack with Dijon clones mm. um, by offering a bit of our farmers a research place. They mm. kept cuttings, we kept the grapes. But the, the common ones that, that we looked at uh, that are widespread around the world is 113, 115, 667, and 777. We've subsequently learned on our property in particular, 777 doesn't really work. It's tight-bunched, it's prone to rot, and um, quite, quite finickety. And I, it just doesn't seem to – that's an empirical observation. Nothing wrong with a clone, um, you know, elsewhere, but it doesn't work so well for us. And um, – Sorry, we've got an Irish wolfhound in our faces. <laughs> he sounds like a locomotive on the move. <laughs> um, we've tried my cell selection. 
um, it wasn't effective. Um, it ended up picking up virus, and, and that was part of the problem. We've looked at anomalistic plants, propagated them and bulked them up, and they haven't worked. Also, again, virus is the issue. Um, the earlier plantings, unfortunately, uh, Pinot Noir is quite susceptible to virus. And if you planted at a certain period of time, you were going to have it on your property. And even if you you pulled it up and planted something else, anything left on the farm with virus had a chance of spreading. Mm-hmm. You needed almost a greenfield site to prevent any spread. Even we're at a point now of roguing individual vines that have virus, but it's been a battle all my wine life against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and virus is leaf roll virus, virus is it? Leaf roll virus, yeah. correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite interested in some of the heritage clones in Oregon. There's some fantastic uh, ones there that are making some of the beautiful wines, possibly because they're older plantings or more marginal or a little bit mm. distressed, and possibly because the clone itself is of interest. Mm. Interesting. Listen, I want to talk to you a little bit about Pinotage because uh, you've, you make two Pinotages, don't you? I mean, one under the Southern Right brand and one under Ashbourne. And it's yeah. been a bit of a crusade of yours, hasn't it? I mean, you know, you've, again, you know, I can't say you don't like a challenge. Do you think Pinotage gets the credit it deserves? And I just wonder, is a world-class Pinotage an oxymoron in a sense? Well, if I was being flippant, I'd say only a moron and oxy would think that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I think that. I'm saying other people might say that. <laughs> um, I've been to too many blind tastings where there's a pinotage and there's a ringer where people have just waxed lyrical about its merits. Um, I've been in a tasting with an older Cunan Corp being deemed the best Syrah in the lineup, and these were Rhones as well as top Australian and South African Syrah. Yeah. Um, why, the, the, the French just haven't put it on the map for us properly. I think it's got enormous mm. potential. In mm. two weeks, we'll bring in some Pinotage from Elgin for Southern Right. And let me just put it out there that if Elgin made that a signature red on their clay soils, mm. relative of Pinot, it does very well on very heavy clay. Mm. And it's an early ripener and thrives in a cooler area, doesn't gallop towards excessive ripeness at high pH and low acid in, in cooler areas. Elgin would have a structured, age-worthy, elegant signature red that I think could be, you know, absolutely world class. And I'm I'm just laughed at every time I suggest it to my friends in Oregon. <laughs> but we're <laughs> gonna keep a barrel of this separate, this block we're working with. It's a young new one, very exciting site for Southern Right. Hmm. And I'm going to make sure every sort of Elgin producer I know tastes that, if it's good, of course. And, and do you make Pinotage like Pinot Noir in a sense? A little bit. There are some meaningful differences. I mean, it's very thick-skinned and deep-colored. Um, it's um, you know sometimes it, it it's really almost difficult to get it off the stalks. It's mm. it's so and it doesn't rot. I mean, it's a beautiful grape in so many ways in that sense. Um, the, the maceration times are a little less. Uh, we have to be a touch more gentle. Tannin is effortless in Pinotage, and um, because of the large amount of skin. The, the pH changes quite a lot during the vinification as well. One has to be very careful about timing of picking as well. So I would say, yes, not too dissimilar to Pinot Noir, but there are subtle differences. And how would you describe the, the style that you're looking to make with Emil, obviously, who Ross is your, who's your brilliant winemaker, across the three brands? You know, is there a consistent style across the three, would you say? Um, you know, I'd have to say that we... Uh, we're much more into the more classic, restrained, 
I mean, these sound like rolling out a bunch of cliches, sort of origin expressive styles. I, one thing signature of Emil's winemaking and also of our philosophy, I like to think, is no ego in the wine. They're not sort of overripe, overwooded. It's not success through excess. It's a very restrained and understated. And I think, as you've remarked before as well, on these clay soils, we tend not to be too fruit forward. Mm. And um, our wines are judged young. So people have to understand how they develop and give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Incidentally, Neil Martin tasting a five-decade lineup of Pinot Noir in March 2022, we put in two of our last six bottles of 81. Swiss sparkling wine clone, four-year-old vines, Portuguese barrels, some Limousin oak, no experience. Uh, our, the score is less important, but he loved it. 94 out of 100. He said, drink now to 2032, giving it the 41-year-old wine another 10 years of life. Wow. And so that's terroir. That wasn't yeah. experience. It wasn't clone. It wasn't yeah. pudding. Yeah. Nothing. It was just it a good sight. Yeah. It is yeah. good sight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you often talk a lot about Burgundy when you're describing your, your own wines, although you didn't just then. I, I just Do you think in South Africa there's still an element of, of cultural cringe uh, about South African Chardonnay and Pinot, that you know, you've got to reference Burgundy to be deemed any good? I mean, is the comparison still relevant, do you think? There, there should be a bit of cultural cringe. Oh, by the way, Neil Martin did say, like Jevre Chamatan, I mean, very good Jevre Chamatan about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tried for about three years not to mention Burgundy at all. We have to mm. get an identity for South African Pinot Noir as South African Pinot Noir, you know, be it Elgin or Yamalanada mm. or Stellenbosch. Mm. Um, but if you're a sommelier and you're in America and someone says, I love Pinot Noir, what do you have? The first mm. question is what you usually drink. And if it's Russian mm. River Pinot Noir or Oregon or Central mm. Otago, which was unlikely, but it might be in America, you're not going to enjoy what we offer. If you like Burgundy, you're going to enjoy what we offer. So Burgundy mm. is brought in as an aesthetic reference to give people an idea of the stylistic leaning. And yeah. that's an accident of geography for us. But I would have failed if I can't communicate what makes it unique in the context mm. of Burgundy. And I have yeah. failed. We get so many emails with people saying, we put it in the tape, blind tasting, and everyone thought it was a this or a that. Never a new world, Pinot, but always in that Burgundian aesthetic mm. reference, and mm. it's just to simplify the communication about the wine. Yeah, and that's fine, isn't it? Yeah. It Yes, we've got to move beyond it, but you you you, you touch a raw nerve. Uh, we haven't done a great job of articulating South African Pinot Noir beyond Burgundy. Yeah. Oh, hello. Dogs are, dogs are barking. That's a great point. <laughs> he doesn't believe what I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your winemakers. We've mentioned Emil, who's there now. Uh, but you've had some great winemakers at Hamilton Russell over the years. Peter Finlayson, obviously Kevin Grant, Hannah Storm. We've all gone on to create their own businesses, actually, in the region. And how did their styles differ, differ as people? Could you still see, even through their winemaking, the, the, the prism of their winemaking, the Hamilton Russellness, if you like, of the vineyards? You absolutely could. And again, I'm, I'm going to refer to Burgundy just, <laughs> just to make a point. All the wines have been in blind tastings, often uh, confused with Burgundy. Each of them made wine at a different sort of time. And if we think we don't follow fashion, um, we like to think that. Just look at your photo album and look at your hairstyle through the different decades. <laughs> we all had hair we wished we hadn't worn in the 80s. <laughs> and some clothes. <laughs> <You know. laughs> clothes as well. It does have a way of coming back. 
I think we were all guilty of a little bit of excess and overwooding and overripening and too much use of malolactic, for example, in Chardonnay in the 2000s, the early 2000s. That's when Kevin happened to be winemaker. Um, it wasn't Kevin's winemaking style as much as just the, the way things were moving. Um, I think Emil's skill, a uh, particular skill, and I do think he really is an exceptional winemaker, is the, um, the, the lack of ego in the wine, the lack of wanting to put a mark on it and a print on it, mm. and um, rolling with the harvest. If the harvest is delivering one sort of aesthetic, he works on trying to enhance that and make that beautiful without working against it towards his idea of what the wine should taste mm. like. And he's very, very good at that. Yeah, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. Just tell us quickly about your views on sustainability, because I know it's very important to you, not just the fact that you're part of a network or a nature reserve as part of the estate, but also the way you nurture your staff, because you've had a lot of people who've worked with you for a very long time, and they're still very loyal to you. And one of them, Barine, has even gone on to make her own wine. I mean, you know, very good wines, not just one, but more than one. Just tell us about sustainability and what it means to you, in a sense. Yeah, well, firstly, on the nature side, um, the whole of the Himalanada within those three appellations is the size of Manhattan Island. And as you point out, the vineyard plantings are not really that relevant. They are 370 hectares, but growing uh, just a bit more than Central Park. So we have an awful lot of nature to look after, and we are doing that. I've been chairman of the Conservancy, was a founder, uh, you know, creator along with some other people of that conservancy in the area. Mm. And we're very, very active. And, mm. and we're going to surround the whole area. We're quite close to getting it with privately conserved Cape Mountain Fainboss, mm. and then add to that little pockets of wetlands, biodiversity islands and the likes. Mm. So that ethic is very much permeated. I think we've got six World Wildlife Fund conservation champions amongst our producers in the area, which is pretty, pretty high number mm. and quite a commitment. Um, in terms of staffing, uh, it just makes me proud that what my father started here with all that risk uh, has amounted to so much employment, skills development and training. We didn't import all our vineyard workers. There are people that were here and those skills have been developed around the industry. And that's a fantastic thought. One of the beauties of making wine in South Africa is as a relatively small business, you can, you can have quite a positive impact. To have the same positive impact in the US or elsewhere, we'd have to be an awful lot bigger. And, and that's a feel-good factor. The fact that the staff stay working with us so long, Talita's 32 years now, Barine must be coming up for 27, having started in her teens, looking after my kids, wasted on it and therefore moved to the office. My financial manager, 27 years. I've just um, sort of celebrated with two chaps who've done 44 vintages on Hamilton Russell Vineyards, every single one oh. um, in the, well, the vintage. I think that, I think that's amazing. I, I'm, it makes me very happy. But mm. we're all going to get old and die, so where are the new people? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the States. Just tell us about your Oregon project. I mean, wh why did you choose to establish a second project over there? Well, we've obviously thought about Burgundy for obvious reasons and realized we'd be at the back of the queue for the most average appellations and probably get the worst grapes from them. Um, we flirted with a joint venture with the Sanford and Benedict Vineyard, had a look at it, and the property, it turned out, was up for sale. And we might have been, you know, perhaps used to enhance the price, no, uh, really, yeah. a, a, the idea of something new. Mm. And uh, we backed away from that. And stylistically, anyway, Southern California and Pinots are much more full-on and robust and, and dramatic than the style aesthetic that we aim at. 
Mm. I've been going to Oregon since the early 90s and um, a little underwhelmed by the wines back then, but just watched it grow and grow and start making some really, truly superb wines, very much in the aesthetic that we admire. Um, you know, with much more dramatic fruit expression being Oregon. It's got this beautiful, pure, open fruit expression. But there were some wines, particularly in Aeola Amity, uh, with some spice and structure. And the French were getting heavily involved, not just Domaine Drain, who've now bought in Aeola Amity, but, but you know, Lingua Franca, Larry Stone with his um, all his experience. There's uh, Mayo Camazes got involved, Domaine, um, you know, the, the, the Jadots have been involved. And it's and and Bollinger's just bought Ponzi. Mm. It it really is where the best Pinot is being made in America, in my opinion. Mm. And we wanted in on that. So in 2018, through contacts, largely Emil's relationships, uh, we were able to jump straight in and get fruit from the very best sources. So we could go in at Grand Cru level in Oregon. Mm. Burgundy, we would have gone in at Village level and got the worst of the grapes. <laughs> and, uh, so, and the, the main reason we did it is not a, a, any kind of bolt hole. It, it, it uses, it, it keeps Emil stimulated. He works two harvests a year and it, it subsidizes our travel in the US. Uh, it's expensive traveling there. If we don't travel there, we stop selling wine. We need to sell wine there. But if we do travel there, it's just not as profitable. For <laughs> <So, laughs> the time being, you're buying grapes, are you? We buy grapes and yeah. we rent cellar space. So it really is arm's length. Yeah. And, and we, it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah. Just tell me a little bit about the South African fine wine scene as it stands at the moment, because I think you guys, you and uh, Olive, your wife, have, have, you know, have done as much as anybody, really, to promote fine South African wine around the world. I mean, I, every event I go to, you know, you guys are there pouring wine. <laughs> Where does South Africa sit at the moment? You know I'm a big fan of the best wines, but is the passion we both feel for it shared by other wine professionals and consumers? Well, I've started by saying I think you do an awful lot more for fine South African wine than any of us. <laughs> Quite honestly, you've done a Thank fantastic you. job of that. Um, if if I think um, the message of just how good the wines are is very firmly entrenched in the minds of the top open-minded writers and critics, um, and it's trickled down to a good deal of the top sommeliers and and the top fine wine retailers but it hasn't reached the consumer mm. in quite the same way for the simple reason that there were years and years of very mundane alternative, you know, South African wine offerings. Mm. And also what is good and what excites you is made in such minuscule quantities and finds its way through a very private pipeline to a handful mm. of individuals. There just mm. isn't enough of it out there. Mm. And I also think it, it sells so quickly and easily for the people that are making it, that they're not traveling, they're not pushing the message. They're not talking to people in across the world about it. They're getting it easily sold from their home base. Mm. And if I was being uncharitable because it's totally enlivened the industry for me, what mm. that new generation has done, the aesthetic they've aimed at, the wines they're making are so beautiful. I'm collecting so many more South African wines than I ever did. Mm. But I would advise them just a little bit more sort of airport and aeroplane, a little bit more um, beach and board. Less <laughs> <laughs> beach and board. Less <laughs> beach yeah. and board, more airport and aeroplane. I and think I like that. I, I would love them to go and tell their story in person, not go collectively to market as en masse. Yeah. 
But yeah. if they were on aeroplanes getting around like Ken Forrester did, like Peter Ferreira yeah. did, like yeah. I guess Oliver and I have done, yeah. um, if you multiplied that up by 60 or 70, Mm. the message would get out so much more quickly. I, I think that's a very good point. Final question, because, you know, we're talking about airports and aeroplanes. You do a lot of that. You love being at home. How do you get away from, from your, de- you know, you, you, from your, your, your work life? How do you like to relax? Um, it, you know, it, it always involves nature to some extent. I've got just so many hobbies and um, the whole farm itself and the beautification of it and the what's planted on it, the aloe gardens, the collection of those kinds of things is just, to me, uh, it's, it's just magical. So it's the closeness to nature, which is, uh, it's an almost spiritual income in the absence of a formal religion. And <laughs> wine is pretty much part of it. Uh, but but the, the long-term beautification of the property would be really my my passion after the making of fine wine. And the occasional cigar, right? Oh, more than the occasional. I, I had one at 5.30 this morning. I, I get up early and have the first small cigar of the day and then one after lunch, and that's that. <laughs> and still looking at maps occasionally? Not, not maps so much. <laughs> but, but you're a great reader, aren't you, as well? I read a lot and uh, my children forced me onto Instagram. Obviously I had to be willing. I'm an adult, but um, quite, quite recently. And I've realized I'm developing almost ADD and I'm reading less. (laughs) It's terrible. It used to be about a novel a week, every week and a half. And now it's not anymore. (laughs) Well, I think I better let you get off and read with a glass glass of wine and a cigar at the end of the day. Anthony, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and wit and insights about South African wine. And I'll see you very soon, I hope. Thanks, Tim. Really enjoyed chatting to you. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that. Anthony's such a great communicator and a passionate advocate for South African fine wines. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Nikki Segnit, author of the best-selling Flavor Thesaurus. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>